In spring 2020, Michael Rosen was struck down by the COVID virus and spent seven weeks in intensive care. An outpouring of support from children, parents, teachers, and many other adults who recalled the importance of Michael's writing and performance to them when they were children proved, if proof were necessary, the high esteem in which he is held. So news that he'd made it through and was recovering came as a great relief. But recovery from such a trauma is slow and painful. Michael has spoken about that process and his appreciation of the professionals and family who helped him through. Now he's written a new picture book, Michael Rosen's Sticky McStickstick, illustrated by Tony Ross. And Michael joined me in the reading corner to tell me more about it. How are you now? <laughs> I, I'm good, mostly. Um, I'm a bit weaker than I was, I think, a bit more breathless. I've lost most of the sight in my left eye, most of the hearing in my left ear. Um, I have numb toes, and um, I, I don't know. I think people with long COVID of one sort or another nearly all say that there's muscles and joint things go on. But yeah. then I am 75, so if you don't have muscles and joint things yeah. going on when you're 75, then uh, you're a lucky person. Yeah. Sticky McStick Stick. <laughs> is your new book and it's a a story of recovery from COVID and I think what comes across in that book is your remarkable resilience and grit but there must have been days when it felt too difficult and I'm just interested to know what kept you going on those days. Interesting, interesting question, yes. I mean, in the period covered by the book, which is essentially the time I was in St Pancras Rehab Hospital in London, near St Pancras Station, I was in there for about three weeks. They taught me how to stand up and how to walk. And I didn't want to. Uh, There's a way in which the bed just pulls you back. It's so comfortable. And here were these very, very kind, coaxing people who insisted that I would be able to walk. I mean, at first I just thought they were not exactly joking, but but being kind of positive in that nursing, doctoring, therapist-y way that, that, that there, were, there was a way forward in which I would be able to walk. And when they did try to get me to stand up, it, it seemed impossible. I was gasping, my legs were shaking, and, and it took three and on occasions four people to prop me up. And so... One reflex was, I'm not going to make this, am I? And so I would just wait when this agony of going to the gym, would you believe, would be over and I could just get back into bed and everything would be normal again. But you don't get angry with people who are trying to help you. No, I don't remember being angry. Uh, I, I was mostly just grovelingly grateful. I'm impressed. I want to talk a little bit about the way in which you've written this book, which is for children. And there is a characteristic lightness that comes through, and that's emphasised by Tony Ross's illustrations. I mean, you are the demon wheelchair user (laughs) in this book. Was humour really important to you as part of your recovery? Yes, it was. I mean, the fact that I called a very ordinary NHS, very, very practical stick sticky mcstick stick that was in itself quite jokey and I, I did like taking photographs of him i think i took a photograph of him hiding in my bed um and put it up on twitter the idea that you know he exists as a person um and there, there were various other times i mean the wheelchair thing 
Um, at first, I know this sounds strange, and I really don't want to make light of people who who rely on wheelchairs for the for the whole of their lives. But it was a liberation for me because uh, I'd struggled with the frame, you know, what people call a Zimmer frame. But the wheelchair was brilliant because I, my arms seemed to stay reasonably strong. So I started zooming down the corridors as Tony has drawn me. And I think the nurses had to quiet me down a bit because uh, I was so delighted. Uh, this was my first sight of humanity outside of a hospital ward mm. in three months. So I went to the window and as it's, as it's in the book, I, I saw someone watering their flowers and I thought, oh, yeah, I remember that. Suddenly, the, this idea of a world that I hadn't seen in all that time suddenly came to me, and it came because of the wheelchair. And then I started making up stuff. I, in fact, I wrote to um, Addy, you know, the, the great basketball star uh, from the Paralympics, to um, get tips on how to zoom around corners. So, yes, it, it did get quite funny. It's funny that you mentioned the woman watering flowers, which, of course, is in your book. And um, what I noticed about the way that you'd written it is how paired back it is how matter of fact you know just a series of very straightforward statements and because of that the simplicity of that moment that you're talking about suddenly becomes much more weighty that's how I felt when I was reading it uh well Nikki music to my ears it's exactly what I try to do that's what I hope to do you know broadly speaking in my head as I start to write about things there's one pull that says write down your emotions write down you felt sad you felt happy you felt exhilarated and the pull in the other direction says if you just say it plainly so the bones can show that's how I see it then people will have their emotions and you can leave them with them they, you, you don't have to tell them that I was happy or it was amazing or that it was a great relief because they'll see it by virtue of turning over the page see it and feel it that's the important thing so it's a divergence, really, between two traditions in art. Uh, one is the romantic tradition, where you say, I wandered lonely as a cloud and this host of waving daffodils. And that's fine. It's lovely. You know, it, it's full of emotion. That's what the romantics were saying in response to all that dry stuff of reason that came in the era before. So that's one pull. And then the other pull, uh, it sounds very obscure, but it actually comes from ancient Chinese poetry, and then it's revival with the Imagists in the beginning of the 20th century, um, who said that you could write about these things as you saw them. <laughs> so if you say you want to express the passing of time, you want to express sadness, you could just describe leaves falling into the water and then the leaves flowing away with the river. You don't have to say, oh, how sad I feel. And that's the sort of origin of haiku. You try and show time passing without saying what you feel about it. So these two pulls I find in my writing quite often. And sometimes I, I go full emotion, uh, perhaps with the younger children, express exhilaration and wonder and things like that. Mm. But with this stuff for older children, I hope that they will get exactly what you described, that you get the kind of whoosh feeling in your stomach as you turn over the page. And there I am mm. seeing the lady watering her flowers. And that's thanks to Tony, because he's done it in a very ordinary sort of a way he hasn't made a big deal of it that that people will get that whoosh without me saying whoosh it strikes me that this is one of the reasons that I find children's untutored writing really powerful because they tend to do that 
Indeed, I once put in a book where I was talking about this very thing, Nikki. I think it was in my book, Did I Hear You Write? And a, a girl had written a poem uh, about how the fact people kept remarking on how small she was. And she just repeated the phrase, there goes tiny Tina, I hear them say. So she didn't say that annoyed me, that made me fed up, that made me sad. She just repeated it. So there was one thing, something like, I do this and I do this. And then there goes tiny Tina, I hear them say. Then she says, I do this. And then it's repeated. There goes tiny Tina, I hear them say. And I remember thinking, that is so stark and so brilliant. That's what I mean by the bones. Mm -hmm. She's got to the bones of it. Mm -hmm. Coming back to the writing of this book or writing around illness, a couple of things I want, well, a few things I wanted to ask you. One was whether there is a catharsis in writing out the experience. Yes, there's no question for me that writing is a combination of, the, you know, we've got that ancient Greek word from Aristotle, catharsis, that in other words, through the emotion, somehow or other, you find a form of redemption or satisfaction or peace. You know, and there are other words around this idea that if you express something that is sitting in your head that pains you, bothers you, that the writing process sorts things out. What it does is it gives you a chance to look at yourself. It's a form of mirror because it's there on the page in front of you. And then when you look at it, you can actually weigh up whether you've been authentic. In other words, have I told that right or have I cheated? Uh, no, you, maybe you didn't really get to what it was you wanted to say. So all those kinds of reflections that you might have are actually very useful because what you're doing is putting yourself up for examination. And mm. um, there was other kinds of writing going on during this period when you were in hospital. The nurses actually kept diaries, didn't they? Did they do that for everybody or was it just because they knew that you were a writer? Part of the training for intensive care nurses, that's in other words, for nurses who are dealing with people who are by and large knocked out in a coma. They write a patient diary for as many as possible. And on the cover of my patient diary, it says this. This diary can be completed by relatives, friends, nurses, doctors and allied health professionals to record the patient's daily events. This diary will be given to the patient on discharge from critical care or, if appropriate, when recovering on critical care. The diary may help with the patient's post-critical care recovery by providing them with information and insight into a time when they were not aware. And I'll show you as well. You can see their writing. Here you go. Here's dear Michael from uh, a student nurse associate saying, get well soon. It was a little drawing of a flower. And then, dear Michael, night shift, 21st of May, 2020. My name is Louise. That's the last one of the notebook, actually. That's, uh, that's Louise seeing me out. So I've done several things since I came out. I have actually spoken to trainee uh, intensive care nurses. And then I have spoken at various conferences and so on. So uh, I'm, if you like, a, what, what could you describe it? An articulate victim. Um, mm -hmm. So they've asked me in to say, well, what's it been like? You know, was it helpful? Was it good to have that notebook? Did, did it tell you things that you didn't otherwise know? I mean, as it happens, I couldn't actually read it first. When I came out of hospital and Emma said, look, there's your patient diary. And I thought, well, why do I want to read that? I mean, that's just horrible. Why would I want to read what 
you know, what do I look like? Or the fact they had to suction my secretions. Why do I want to read about that? I mean, now I read about it obsessively and I just think, oh, wow, on the 21st of May, they had to suction my secretions. That's really interesting. But that's um, that's another thing. It's a bit different from the flower that was drawn. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, no, it's lovely. You know, they say today, you know, very sorry, we had to shave your beard. I know you won't be happy about that, but, um, you know, oh. because you've got a tracheostomy and uh, oh. we can't let the... Um, the wound gets septic, you know, and there they are telling me this. They're telling me that they support Derby County and not Arsenal. Hopefully don't mind. I mean, it's, they're amazing. And the asides are in some ways the best of all, you know. Oh, I've just come from bladder and bowels. You know, I don't usually work on ICU. And you go, what? What do you mean you're usually on bladder and bowels? And then you think, oh, yeah, of course, they were delegated because of the pressure. It's April and May 2020. And yeah. um, in my ward, there were 11 bays for ICU patients, and they had 24 patients. It's a personal record, and in some sense, it's a a historical record um, as well. Just coming back to um, reading and writing, and you said that you couldn't read your diaries. I thought you were going to uh, say something about the mental energy that is required for reading. Yes, uh, I thought when I came home that one of the things I would do is sit in the armchair over there and read some classics that either I hadn't read or uh, wanted to read again. And one of these was Return of the Native, Thomas Hardy. And uh, I remember trying to read it as a teenager and getting stuck somewhere around about page 30 or 40. So I thought I would do it. And guess what? I got stuck around page 30 and 40 yet again. I mean, I liked it. I I loved the, the whole first pages. And then I thought, do you know, I can't quite build up the energy to read it. It's fact sitting over there right now going, come and read me, come and read me. You bunked off. You didn't read me. Um, As it happens, I find reading online very, very easy. So uh, I've read, you know, hundreds of articles and all sorts of things. Reading a whacking great novel, I I haven't actually done. Was it easier to get back into writing than it was into reading? Mm, I think it was because I think anyone who writes a lot – writes quite a lot in their head. You start phrasing things and plotting things and shaping things. So I did write while I was lying in hospital, a little book called Rigatoni, the Pasta Cat. (laughs) And I, I wrote that in my head while I was lying there. And then what I would do is having come up with it and the outline of it, I would then sit there refining it, but without writing it down. So when I came home, I did actually say to myself, I wonder now if you can write that out. So one of the first things I did, you know, with Emma saying, don't do anything, just sit in the chair, just sit in the chair, don't do anything. And I sneaked off when she went out. I sneaked off to the computer and wrote it out. And um, yes, in fact, I believe that's coming out in April. Also Mm -hmm. illustrated by Tony Ross. Well, I think there's a lot that could be said about that, the differences between reading and writing. And, you know, we often think that writing takes more effort. For children, it seems to take more effort. Yeah, the children question is interesting. And and the way I always put it when I'm talking with teachers is children are living in a largely oral world. Then there's this writing stuff. And the point about this writing is most of it is in a code, a register, dialect, whatever word you want to use, that is not the one they speak with. In fact, nobody speaks the way we write. I mean, it's been quite jokey recently. There have been transcripts of the way Boris Johnson speaks. 
So it's not actually a criticism of him. He's got his own idiosyncratic way of speaking, which is not to finish sentences, to do lots of ums and ahs, to repeat things, hesitate, and so on. So he doesn't speak the way he writes, and nobody does. So when we think we're throwing four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds into this world of this language they don't speak, and then we say, write like that. And when children find it difficult, you know, mm. it's very easy to get irritated as if somehow or other they're being, I don't know, reluctant or uh, deliberately obstructive. But in actual fact, uh, the way I often see it is because the leap from the spoken to that written is such a big gulf. Now, some kids get it. Of course they do. And nearly always they're the ones who read widely and often. And if you immerse kids in this written language of, of the children's books, then they'll start getting They'll get it just as it's it's got echoes. It's like you're, you're learning that register. And also it, it helps them write it. Mm -hmm. So Sticky McStick Stick is a book about your recovery, but more broadly than that, it's a book about keeping going and not giving up when things are difficult. You don't have to have been ill to find something relevant to you in this book. That's what I hope. I hope that people will see, here's this bloke who some of them know from Bear Hunt or Chocolate Cake or something like that, and, you know, got it, got his legs almost literally taken away from him. Um, and so it was a challenge. That's one word we use. So what do you do about it? And so I'm hoping to show people that one way or another, I, I did cope with it and I got home and uh, walked through the door and met my family. And yes, I hope that people might look at it and say, oh, yes, I, oh, I, I know a challenge like that in my life. I mean, that's, that's in actually in the tradition of the parable, isn't it? If you go back to the Bible. So just think of one of the most famous, the, the Good Samaritan. Now, we don't know whether that ever happened. It may have done. It may not have done. But the reason why it's there in the Bible is Jesus is telling a story about don't walk by on the other side of the road. So you can have a genuine situation in which somebody is lying in the road like the Samaritan, but it may be another situation. It may be because you hear about your grandmother um, who's in a bad way. Are you going to go around there or are you not? So that parable tradition is, exists in children's books quite often. And if you write in a particular kind of way, and the writing in this is quite spare, so it's sort of a bit like a folk tradition of writing. Mm -hmm because things happen and then and then, and then I sort of plonk back. So there's little trios and little routines that kind of repeat themselves. So it's got a bit of a shape of a folktale that, yes, I hope that people will think of it in terms of how that is like something in their life. Because if you write in that what's called an emblematic way, if you write in that particular way, think of, say, Hansel and Gretel or Cinderella, some of these stories, is that there's a whole load of stuff that isn't there. You know, it doesn't, you know, we don't know what Hansel and Gretel look like. We don't know whether the dad's got a beard or the mum wears a hat. We don't know any of that stuff. It's just they took them into the forest. You know, times were hard. They took them into the forest, left them there. It's very, very stark. Mm -hmm. Well, if you write like that, you can then think of analogies very easily. You can say, oh, wow, that's, a, that's like an abandonment story. It's like that time I got lost in Sainsbury's. So mm -hmm. you can leap from Hansel and Gretel to being 
abandoned as you thought you were when you were aged four and your mum was just simply at the till paying and you thought I was abandoned it's just like Hansel and Gretel and you can make the jump Mm, fascinating when people have been through a trauma which you obviously have I often talk about being changed by that and I suppose just to finish I'm interested in whether you're aware that anything has changed for you having been through this experience Yes, I think uh, I have to say it's a sense of precariousness. I'm a different person and very alert and sometimes anxious about uh, my own state of being or the state of being of my kids or Emma. And I think that's all been, it's all got racked up a bit. It's been magnified. So there's that. Maybe sort of somehow other a bit more philosophical, just a bit more in the sense of, thinking about the passing of time obviously I'm 75 you know I'm not going to be here in 50 years time so you know you draw a line between now and 50 years and you know at some point or another it's going to be an end and what does that actually mean there's a very famous Raymond Carver poem that I reflected on when Eddie died that's my son where he's locked himself out of his room and he looks back into his room and he can't get in and then he sort of sees this room without him in there and it's a, an incredible poem, and I recommend it to everybody to read. And um, it's it's brilliant because, you know, I find I do sometimes walk around uh, this house or other places and think of what they'll be like when I'm not there. Uh, and I guess that's been precipitated by being literally so near to death mm. as I was. And I know that is absolutely true. If, if Emma hadn't taken me to the hospital that night, I was a goner. And then there were two or three times when I was actually in there that I could have done. And so, you know, you you reflect on all this. And I, I guess I'd, another thing I've thought about is, it, well, it, it ties in with Sticky Big Stick Stick, which is there is a way of seeing us as humans, as people who go through extraordinary efforts to recover all the time. We're always recovering from something. So there are these Latin phrases like homo ludens, which means sort of man the player, or homo labor, you know, man the worker. And these, these phrases come up in 19th century, sort of writing about what is the essence of humanity. And then I started thinking, well, maybe one essence of humanity is that what we do is we're always trying to recover. So, you know, someone is beastly to us, we try to recover, we get flu, we try to recover, uh, we lose something, you know, oh God, I lost my wallet. It was just the end of the world, you know, because I couldn't, I didn't have my credit card. And then we spend a week trying to recover while we tell everybody how disastrous it was. You know, the cat dies. Oh, that was just the end of the world. And then we try and recover. So it's a funny sort of way as I sort of reflected back over the various things I've chosen to recover from or had to recover from and thought, hmm, maybe what we are is recovering. And it ties in with something that I learned about in biology, which is called homeostasis. And homeostasis is this brilliant thing that the body does, that whatever um, invades it or upsets it or causes a problem, what the body does is make huge efforts to bring it back to equilibrium. And we don't know anything about this. The body's just busy doing it. And then I thought, well, there's a mental equivalent to homeostasis. And that is this sort of recovering reflex. And you can look at some people and you can think you are not doing what it takes to recover from this thing, whatever it might be. And then others, you think, wow, you're doing a lot to help yourself recover. So I've thought a lot about that. 
homo recovering and homo in the sense, <laughs> obviously, of all humankind, not man. Obviously, yeah. That goes without saying. Fabulous. Do you know, Michael, we're so glad to have you back with us and uh, looking forward to seeing Sticky McStick Stick get out there and readers, you know, being inspired by your story. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Nikki. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.